Accredited investor minimums might be on the rise. TikTokers say we're living in a silent depression, and the House just passed a new bill that could bring back bonus depreciation in full. You're listening to the Bigger Pockets Daily Show, where we cover the day's biggest stories in economics and real estate. I'm your host, Matt Muir, Managing Editor of the Bigger Pockets blog. And today we're going to start with the Securities and Exchange Commission, better known as the SEC, possibly raising the accredited investor minimum. So recently, staff, and that's a very specific point here, staff of the SEC wrote a report recommending that the SEC increase its accredited investor minimums, citing that they believe too many households qualify. So if you don't know, the SEC, or the Securities Exchange Commission, like I said, is basically a federal agency that regulates investments. What this means is that they look at IPOs, so initial public offerings that are being filed. They force companies that are public to file 10Ks, which are the annual reports, or other quarterly reports, basically making sure that all financial information is publicly available for investors and just the general public to know what's going on inside a company and make a reasonable investment decision there. There's lots of debates over how intertwined the SEC should be with the economy and investments and and companies. A lot of people say it's overreach. A lot of people say it's good for keeping things stable. It did start In 1934, it was established then, which is obviously during the height of the Great Depression. It has a five-panel board of people who make decisions. And when I say the staff of the SEC wrote this report recommending that the accredited investor status be raised, what I mean is that they do not have the sole authority to change it. They're just recommending to their board that they do it. So this is not happening yet. We don't know if it's even going to happen. But ever since the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010 established these guidelines for SEC requirements and all the new financial requirements that companies need to do, every four years, the SEC will look at what the accredited investor minimums are and what they should be. And they make decisions based on that. What does being an accredited investor mean? Well, it does matter for real estate investors, and we'll get into that in just a second. Basically, you can get access to special investments, so usually what we call Regulation D offerings, and these are investments that the general public does not have access to. So think of it as a club. It's a very special club. How do you get there? Well, basically, you need to have a net worth worth $1 million without your primary residence included in that equation. So You have to have $1 million worth in private equities and investments in whatever you're doing. It cannot be your private residence. The investment access you get, obviously, I said IPOs, you can get private equities, you can get into syndications, which is where real estate comes involved. Now, real estate syndication is where a group of investors pool their funds to invest in some sort of a project. It's a way to raise large amounts of capital. It's a way where a bunch of investors can get together and amplify their returns through an operator who will manage the investment and get the best ROI from it. And also, it's a way for them to buy larger properties. The reason why you need to be accredited to get into these investments is so that you're not being exposed to too much risk. And what do I mean by this? So 
If you're told that you can invest in a property for $50,000 without any sort of access to the private company, very specific point there, private company, which is not bound by the SEC's requirements for financial reporting. If that company says, yeah, we have a great investment opportunity. All you got to do is give us $50,000 and you'll get 20% ROI. Well, without the proper financial data to look at that company and see its proven track record of doing that, for one, two, seeing if it has proper cash flow, if it has a good balance sheet, if it even knows what it's doing, you as a general investor have no idea what that means, if it even works, and if you're just handing your money into a scam. So why does all of this matter? Why do we even care what the accredited investor status is? Well, for one, if you're a real estate investor and you do work with syndications, it is actually a big deal because the SEC might increase its requirements. Why? Well, it's because 18% of the population right now currently is qualified to become an accredited investor. They don't want that. They don't want too many people to become accredited investors. So they're thinking about raising the requirement to $3 million in net worth, which would reduce the eligible population to around 6%. Obviously, the biggest change here, if you're a real estate investor and you're worth $1 million, suddenly you will not be qualified to become an accredited investor and your ability to work with syndications will drop. However, there is a huge caveat here, right? Because while a syndication can be lucrative and can earn a huge ROI, even if there's a higher degree of risk, platforms like Fundrise and other crowdfunding platforms are basically the same thing. They're just called REITs or real estate investment trusts. They are very, very similar as a business model to syndications but they're more liquid and they still generate decent returns. So for instance, a lot of syndications will say you can get a 20% ROI. Well, a REIT on average has been earning about 12%, even outpacing the stock market, depending on you know which crowdfunding platform you go to. So while this accredited investor requirement going up might be you know a little bit of an issue for some folks, honestly, you could just move your, your money into a REIT and do just as well and probably be a little bit safer. So that's the big story there. When we come back from the break, we're gonna talk about the big topic on TikTok that's been trending over housing affordability. There's been a huge battle between influencers and economists over this stuff. So we will get right into that after the break. Okay, almost time for the show. We'll get right into it after this quick break. Meet RentApp, the seamless, secure, free way to collect rent. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. You don't even need to download anything. RentApp setup is straightforward for renters, and there are no apps for landlords to download. Both get peace of mind with a digital transaction history. That means no more lost checks, managing a dozen different payment apps, or even wondering whether payment was sent. Landlords say RentApp is the most convenient way to collect rent, and we think you'll agree. RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app slash landlord. That's rent.app slash landlord. Managing your finances used to be a pain. It was either useless apps or overcomplicated spreadsheets. Ugh. But now, with Monarch Money, managing your money is easier than ever. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. 
create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com bigger. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to set up, customize, and use. You can even collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor at no extra cost to get a joint view of all your finances. Customize your dashboard, notifications, and budgets with the tap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show right here will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com bigger. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash bigger for your extended 30-day free trial. Welcome back. So like I was saying, TikTok has been stirring about housing affordability. So some TikTokers got together and started talking about the silent depression. Wages are down. Prices are up. The average person has to take on multiple jobs just to make it by. And according to an article BiggerPockets recently published, quote, one TikToker named Freddie Smith presents figures from 1930 versus those from 2023. According to the TikTok video, an average house now costs eight times the average salary, while it cost only three times the average salary in 1930. Renting would have taken away 16% of your wage back in 1930, but it will eat up an extraordinary 42% of it now, end quote. Economists, however, shot back. They said that the economy was doing just fine and that anyone suffering can qualify for government assistance and or get a side hustle. That might be a little contentious from the economists, admittedly, but what is actually going on with the economy and who's right? So I've been saying for a, a long time now that the economy isn't quite as rosy as some economists have put it. And I think you can kind of get that vibe from the economists based on that sentence. Like, no, your first response shouldn't be go get some government assistance or go get a side hustle. There, there are genuine issues with prices. There are genuine issues with the cost of things. However, it, from the TikToker perspective, comparing today to the Great Depression is outrageous. Uh, it's absolutely outrageous. A better comp would be if you look at like 2000. So in this housing affordability debate, we know as investors like what the real issue is. It's supply. That has been the issue for the last 10 years. Ever since the Great Recession, that has been the chief issue. Builders stopped building in the span of 2008 to 2011, and we are paying the price for it now. That price is being paid for in home prices that are five times the amount they were in 2000. For instance, a three-bedroom home in Ohio in 2000 was $50,000. Today, it is $250,000, give or take. Now, obviously, there's inflation involved with that, and even inflation in the last two years alone has become an issue with that. But real crux of that issue, honestly, is wage growth has not matched the value of homes rising as quickly as they have. Real household income today is only $7,000 higher than it was in 2000, inflation adjusted, which means it's really truly only $7,000 higher today than it was in 2000. That's a tremendous loss in buying power over the last 20 years. That's tremendous. So what is the bottom line? Like I said, it's supply. But we're also in an environment that's extremely stagnant. Like we just had a jobs report come out last week that said that we added 300,000 jobs. Are those jobs good jobs? Because we've seen tons of tech layoffs. We've seen tons of white collar work where wages are much higher 
have tons of layoffs, lower profits, are the jobs good? Or are they mostly part-time jobs? Or are jobs that are added in December part-time seasonal jobs for the Christmas season? We can't base the entire argument on the labor market because the labor market doesn't paint a clear picture of what's actually happening. On top of that, I've talked about GDP. I've talked about GDI not matching GDP. We had great GDP growth last year. But when you look at GDI, it's not showing the same part of the equation because GDI is lower. The income received for the goods produced, they should be the same. They're not. As investors, what's most important about this whole issue, you have to just pay attention to the data, not so much listen to the spin because every outlet will give you a different spin. We try our best on bigger pockets to be as straightforward as possible. But we just want to make sure that you are a conservative investor, conservative in the sense of financially, that you're not overspending here. You're not trying to get a deal for the sake of getting a deal. You're waiting for the right deal. And you're doing your due diligence on your properties. You're not assuming that appreciation is just going to go up. You're not assuming that cash flow is just going to exist. Because the reality on the ground is markets right now are not producing cash flow like they used to. Appreciation is slowing down. And to expect 2020 numbers, to expect 2021 numbers in this economy is just not realistic. It's just not. So with that said, let's jump into our final story today. It looks like Congress did something. Can we get a round of applause? Congress did something. Unbelievable. So last Wednesday, the full House of Representatives passed 357 to 70. 357. I can't believe it. They passed the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024, which includes 100% bonus depreciation, as well as research and development, expensing, and an expansion of the child tax credit. Now, we're not going to get into those latter things I said. What we are going to talk about is bonus depreciation. That is huge news for real estate investors. Basically, if you don't know, bonus depreciation is where, say, it's 2024, and you have a massive, massive tax bill. You owe a ton of money, like say $500,000. Basically, you can take your asset that say you bought for $500,000 in 2023 and take the entire value of the property and write it off as depreciation, 100%. Now, that doesn't work for most investors at least a small time investors, but for some bigger companies, some bigger investors, that's actually a really great way to one, offset your taxes. So your tax bill would drop immediately. Obviously, if you write off $500,000 on a property, of course, you can't necessarily use that depreciation down the road like you would with a standard depreciation deduction where you take the useful life over a course of about you know 27 to 38 years, depends on what year it is. And the second part of that is that you also can make your adjusted income a loss, which can then get rolled over into the following years and also help your tax bill in that way. So it doesn't kill you if you are a smaller time investor to use the bonus depreciation because you can use it later on. But it's a huge, huge deal. What's been going on with that though is that ever since the Jobs Act of 2017, when that was passed, bonus depreciation was 100%. The eligibility was 100%. You could just take off the entire property. However, as of the end of 2022, 
it dropped down to 80% that you could deduct as bonus depreciation. It's expected to drop by 20% every subsequent year until it's phased out by the end of the decade. That looks like it's not going to happen. It looks like we might actually get it back. And obviously, the House passed it, which means it needs to go through the Senate and then it needs to be signed by the president. However, if the House passes anything at 370 for the vote total, I would assume the Senate will follow suit and I would assume it would get signed into action by the president. So that is probably the best news we've had from Congress in a while as investors. So I will sign off by saying that I am not a tax strategist. So if you want to get more information on bonus depreciation and how this law can affect things, check out Real Estate Rookie episode 368 with our CPA and tax strategist, Natalie Colodi. Uh, to hear more about depreciation and all the fun stuff that you can do with depreciation, including this new bonus depreciation rule. So we talked about the SEC, we talked about the silent economy, and then we just finished off with bonus depreciation and the tax act. To check out more information and all of the news and research and data that we were publishing at BiggerPockets, you can go to biggerpockets.com slash blog. That is biggerpockets.com slash blog, where we cover everything you need to know to become a better real estate investor. Once again, I'm Matt. I'll be here two times per month. So check back regularly for my takes on news and economics and all of the things that matter to you as investors.